Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of DSC's Chatty Questions. And we're here with another guest. Uh, and uh, we're here with Michael Norton this time, who, who's going to share his story with us. And uh, Michael has a, a unique story when it comes to DSC because he's actually the founder of the organization. And I'm not going to go into any more detail than that because I know he wants to uh, talk about that and, of course, many other things. And he's been involved in social change for a long time. And, and we wanted to, to share with the wisdom that he's got with this audience today. So welcome, Michael, and thank you for joining the Charity Questions podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. No worries, no worries. Glad to have you here. And, and so we put some questions out to the wider Twitter sphere uh, and, of course, internally in, in DSC. And I know some of my colleagues and some people on Twitter uh, have got some questions for you that they want to ask. And um, so I, I personally want to know this as well. So you founded DSC. When was it that you founded DSC? It was in, in uh, 1975, I think. There we go, 1975. I, I just got back from a trip to the United States. It was a sort of road trip cool. uh, over four months, just looking at aspects of social change uh, to see what they were doing in America, looking at fundraising, training, and training provided to non-profits, mm. and also, curiously, photographing mural paintings. <laughs> <laughs> because I was really interested in the way people adapt their environment uh, mm. by changing it. And um, there were murals that were artistic, there were murals that were political, there were murals, murals that were ethnic, there were murals which are humorous. Uh, you name it, there were it. Um, one of the ones I, I remember most was in New York, where yeah. a derelict building, they painted shadows of people having a party on all the windows. Um, so the building came to life. Another was Hog Heaven in uh, Los Angeles, which was a pig processing plant. And the whole of the building was covered with happy landscapes of pigs cavorting around, while inside they were being chewed to pieces and turned into sausages. Right. So um, I went looking for inspiration. I had an idea that um, uh, I would like to get together all the facts and ideas and organizations that. Uh, were involved in different aspects of social change. Mm. I wrote down about 10 or 12 themes from uh, science to environment to community organising to education, etc., etc. And I called it the Directory of Social Change. Uh, and it was a little bit based on the encyclopedia idea of the French Revolution. If you put information together, it gives people power. Mm. and the power to know what other people are doing, to share ideas and to do things differently. So I went on this trip, I had an amazing time. I was passed like a parcel from uh, person to person and given hospitality in every city I visited. And I came back and I started writing the book, The Directory of Social Change. Wow. I formed a charitable organisation uh, to host the idea. Yeah. Um, I couldn't get any money. I, th I thought I knew a bit about fundraising. I'd write some applications to, to people I knew in the grant making sector. Yeah. So I wrote applications and they were turned down. Okay. But the, the, I, I always say you need three plans. You need plan A, which is the full Monty, what you really want, all the money to do what you want to do. Plan B is enough money to get started mm. so it's proved that you're serious and then go on to raise more money and plan c is to try and do something with no money at all mm. uh, because if you just hang around waiting for people to support you it's a little bit like a child asking for pocket money you're asking mm. someone for, for permission to do what you want to do 
So I did the third, actually. Um, and what I did was I went to CSV, Community Search Volunteers, and I got two volunteers for six months uh, who worked with me. Um, and we just started writing uh, the book. I then found a publisher called Wild With Us, and we published two volumes simultaneously in 1927. Uh, one, one was called uh, Community, one was called um, Education and Play. And just an interesting aside, I was um, written to, because we didn't have email or anything like that in those days, I was written to by someone called Neil Jameson, who was working for the Children's Society. Okay. And he was interested in community organizing in Chicago. Mm. And I covered that in my book, and he wanted to know uh, what I knew about it and to be given the contact. Mm. He visited the Industrial Areas Foundation, which is the foundation promoting the ideas of Saul Alinsky, who's the godfather of community organizing, yeah. came back to the UK and set up Citizens UK, mm. um, which is now a thriving organization, uh, which is the citizen organization movement in the UK. And that just shows how. Um, ideas can and spread, and how writing ideas down can inspire other people to do things. I love that. Anyway, I came back, we wrote these two books, they were published, yeah. full of hope. Every author thinks that um, the book they write is going to be a bestseller. <laughs> I may come back to that later. Um, and of course, it wasn't. Uh, World with Her has published 4,000 copies of each title. Yeah. Uh, we did a second, a third book on. Um, housing and a fourth on women and of course right. I commissioned uh, a group of, uh, from a, a national women's organisation to write the directory on women yeah. and then the publisher went broke oh. um, but while all that was happening um, I met my, uh, Hilary who became my wife yeah. uh, she was about to have published a book called Fundraising a Comprehensive Handbook mm. I said to her uh, what's the publisher doing for the launch of the book? And you say, I don't know, probably nothing. So I said, why don't we organise a series of seminars on fundraising? So we rang up uh, grant givers and we ran up, rang up uh, proposal writers and we um, organised a one-day event. We actually organised four. One was on raising money from trusts, one was raising money from business, one was on raising money through special events, and one was on um, something else, I can't remember. Um, and we, uh, we held, held those. There was absolutely no training at all in those days for the mm. voluntary sector. So we invented training for the voluntary sector. We were overwhelmed. Um, and we took the library associations up venue because it sounds a bit grand. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I baked the biscuits ourselves for the, <laughs> and we got some caterers to provide the lunch. Amazing. Um, and it went really well. Um, we had people ringing up, desperate to come. Uh, so this was the start of the direction of social change mm -hmm. as it became. We also um, decided to transcribe the talks. Uh, and put them on, in sort of loose, loose leaf pages into a plastic folder okay. uh, so that people could have the wisdom that was yeah. transmitted through the events. And um, my wife knew the director of the Cadbury Trust. Okay. And she persuaded him to support us. And the support he gave was to reduce the very high price we were going to charge 
for these leaflets because mm. we didn't know how they would sell. Mm. And we thought if, if they were too cheap, they were, they were, no one would come on the training courses. Okay, yeah. Um, so he paid for the, the reduction in price from sort of uh, $5.95 to $1.95. Uh, and that was our first grant. Wow. Uh, we went on to organise many more of those. Yeah. And then I thought, well, it's a lot of bother bringing up people uh, to, to, to ask them to come and speak. Why don't I run a fundraising course? Yeah. And um, so I did. I didn't know that much about fundraising, but the idea is that you facilitate discussion. You learn from people and you bounce ideas between people. Uh, and Absolutely. When, when, when you do that, you learn much more about it and you become a sort of expert. So my advice is an expert is always a person who's just one step ahead of everyone else, but has the confidence actually to, to share ideas, to be curious and uh, to want to do something. Love that. Uh, so this was actually the beginning of the Directory of Social Change. Um, we went on to publish uh, the leaflets in book form Mm-hmm. And I remember very well that um, I had a, a, a feeling that um, we didn't have enough money to pay the printer. Um, so I went to NCBO and I said, can we put a little flower in your uh, newsletter? So I wrote something on one side of this paper, put a flower in, a flower in, and we more than covered the cost of printing all four books through that. And ever since that, that point, with the books we published, we always generated the income needed through prior sales to the publication. Same as now. And I then went on to feel that uh, all these little books, I needed something that was a bit bigger uh, to, to actually start generating income because Director of Social Change, in my view, was to be a social enterprise, not a handout organisation mm. begging for money. So I had a hot bath. And like Archimedes, I leapt out of the bath because I had an insight. What was it that people would need that we could produce and provide relatively easily, easily and which would go out of date relatively quickly? And the idea just occurred to me, a directory of company giving. Wow. So I leapt out of the bath and said, this is the idea we're going to work on. I had no idea how to do it at all. So I hired two out-of-work actors uh, to telephone companies uh, because they had the, the chutzpah, the gall to do that mm-hmm. um, and to ask them what they were doing. I then discovered that a financial services organisation had a list of all non-financial companies and their charitable giving, uh, just a figure for how much they were giving. So we were with through both of those and mm-hmm. by uh, generating a few case studies, we published the Guide to Company Giving in uh, the middle of 1984. Wow. I then thought we ought to go on and do something. And mm. I was rung up by someone who was working at NCBO and he was working on, um, on payroll giving, I think. Okay. Um, and um, his contract was coming to an end. Um, and he telephoned me to say uh, he had three months spare to do anything and could we come and talk? So I worked out that I would go and ask him to see if he would do a guide to trust giving. Mm-hmm. And when I met him, he before I had a, could mention it, he said, what I would like to do is do a directory of trusts. So we then worked on that. He was called Luke Fitzherbert. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> He was uh, a mainstay with me. 
uh, with the director of social change, uh, became a guru in his own right. Definitely. Uh, the interesting thing was that um, he uh, finished the draft manuscript and then went sailing across the Atlantic with his friend Peter Jay, who happened to be the chairman of NCBO as well. Okay. And they became a UK ambassador in Washington. Wow. Um, and um, so I was left with the manuscripts and we'd sent out uh, draft entries to all the trusts. And some of them were saying to us, we're going to sue you. I don't know what for. One said, we're going to sue you for all the extra work you're going to give us <laughs> more people applying to us <laughs> and I just dismissed all of those I, I, I thought no, nobody's ever going to sue us and we published it and interestingly one of the trusts the Henry Smith charity Luke campaigned for years and years to make it more open yeah. at that time in the NCPO Director of Grant Making Trusts it had an income of £4,000 we knew it was many many times bigger than that uh, perhaps a hundred times, thousand times bigger. Mm. And Luke uh, had a campaign against them over years. And eventually, uh, they sent him, I think it was about three or four years later, a copy of their, the brochure they prepared uh, stating what they did with their to say, thank you so much for making us become more open because it's improved what we do. Absolutely. So that, that was uh, the founding of Director of Social Change. Um, I guess there were, there were no real challenges because if you make it a social enterprise, if you depend on income from what you do, you become quite market orientated. Mm, mm. And we found that we were quicker, more agile and cheaper than all the grant funded organisations like the Volunteer Centre, NCVO, Charities Aid Foundation and others. And we worked often in partnership with them, with us doing the work. Absolutely. Um, and them providing us with their mailing lists, as it were, and help with speakers. Um, so, um, yeah, and that just one uh, little thing that I'm, I'm quite proud of was that um, I've only ever done one thing only for the money. It's yeah. not true. I've done one other thing as well. Okay. <laughs> Do we get to find out well, what they are? <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I did only for the money okay. was I... Um, uh, Decide, I met someone who'd done uh, a directory of Japanese corporate philanthropy. Okay. And he was from, I think, uh, Seattle or San Francisco, I can't remember. Um, and so I, I, I wrote to him and I said, why don't we organize an event on Japanese corporate philanthropy? So I met him when I was in New York. We met at Grand Central Station uh, for about half an hour. We decided what to do. I said, uh, we're going to charge... Uh, uh, 300 pounds. He said, why 300 pounds? So we made it, I think, 750 pounds or or more. Yeah. And I said, we're going to limit it to 50 people. He said, why 50 people? Uh, we'll have as many as want to come. We ended up having about 90 people. Yeah. And between us, uh, we cleaned up uh, 20,000 pounds profit each because we were sharing it for, two, for those two days' work. Wow. Um, interestingly, in between deciding to do it and the event itself, uh, the Japanese stock market collapsed. Um, but we, what we were saying to people was basically to, to get to Japan, you need to not just ask for money, you need to have a presence in Japan so they understand what you're doing. 
Definitely. We had a lot of environmental organizations, uh, universities, uh, arts organizations and others sending teams of people because they thought there was a magic bullet, which there mm. really wasn't. Mm. But we had three people from LSE, and I was really keen that LSE set up in Japan yeah. uh, because I thought it would be a really good idea, yeah. and they could get Japanese giving to support that really easily. Yeah. Um, and I went to see the director of LSE with the fundraising team who'd been on our workshop. And he sniffed and he said, I don't think it's for us. And in the meantime, you know, the... the um, uh, That's the way it's all gone, isn't it? The Guggenheim Museum's gone all over the world. Yeah. Um, the Harvard has set up things all over the world. Yeah. Um, British institutions are far too slow to build on their reputation to mm. do things internationally. Mm. They're getting um, there. They're getting there, definitely. Yeah, and the other thing I did just for money was I was asked to um, uh, to, to judge a social enterprise competition in Hong okay. Kong, uh, and they offered me two thousand dollars to read through, I think, uh, one hundred and thirty-five uh, uh, different projects. That's a lot. With with the best three or something like that. Amazing. So I thought I can do that in a day. Why don't I do, I do it? Number one on the pile is something called Fundation Paraguaya, uh, which runs agricultural schools, some for girls only, in Paraguay. Yeah. And I had worked in my mid-twenties as a volunteer on an agricultural school in Israel in 1967 wow. as a replacement senior English teacher at a high school, at this high school. Um, and I thought it was a really good idea. Um, so I put them number one on my list. Others didn't agree with me, so it didn't win the prize. <laughs> uh, but I remained in touch. And um, a lot of history has happened between then. And I've just come back from a visit to Paraguay a couple of weeks ago to visit their school to see how they work. Wow. Because I've met someone who's a friend of mine who's from Sierra Leone. Okay. And she wanted to start a secondary school. So I said, why don't we start an agricultural school for girls? And her family has made available 2,000 hectares of land on wow. which we're going to build this. Wow. So um, there's a lesson there, which is uh, if you keep saying no to things, you never get the opportunities. And I'm the guy who always likes to say yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about agricultural schools? That's just my own interest, I think, there. Well. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's... There are two things. One is we need to feed a very hungry world. Okay. And we're not going to be able to do that through subsistence agriculture Absolutely. for two reasons. One is it's not productive enough. Mm -hmm. And two is young people just don't want to do it. Their families are doing it, but they don't want to. All over the world. They've been in Punjab and China, yeah. uh, in Latin America. They don't want to be subsistence farmers. Fine. So can we create a mechanism for engaging young people in as as agro and entrepreneurs, as it were, mm. running businesses using a bit of technology, so just beyond a bit of uh, subsistence farming into something a bit more advanced, um, and and create change that way. Can we make the world feed itself? Can we reduce carbon emissions? Can we create employment? All aspects of it. So that, that's the idea behind it, really. Close the loop. Yeah, I mean, George Monbiot's new book, Regenesis, just come out, same kind of thing, isn't it? Same direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's, 
I mean, th- these things are harder to achieve than you might think. Because mm. um, people are very conservative and society is very conservative. Absolutely. But it has to start somewhere. And my friend in Paraguay now runs three schools. Um, and um, it is changing the lives of some very poor people from very disadvantaged backgrounds and, and giving them often uh, places at university, jobs in agriculture or the ability to transform their family's small holdings. Mm. Yeah, that's an amazing cause, Michael. And uh, I mean, in line with with that kind of cause, is there anything else you're you're working towards at the moment? I mean, other projects I know Unlimited is something you've been involved in in the past. Yeah, so Unlimited is another story, actually. Um, I I was passed a leaflet which said, uh, would you like £100 million? And to me, there's only one answer to that question, which is, yes, please. When? Yes, <laughs> now. And the Millennium Commission of the Lottery, which had been set up to celebrate the Millennium, not all the projects went ahead. So Eden Project, for example, went ahead, but a lot of projects mm-hmm. couldn't get their act together in time, so it didn't. So they had £100 million left over, and they wanted to put it into uh, continuing one of their more successful initiatives, which were grants to individuals. So they said, please come forward with your ideas, preferably a consortium, uh, to uh, make grants to individuals. And um, I I was interested in um, social entrepreneurship. I'd been uh, a co-founder of something called Changemakers, which is getting young people active in uh, creating community projects. I've met others doing similar things. Um, so I got a group of people together and I said, why don't we bid for it? Mm. Um, actually, I didn't get a group of people together. I went to a meeting organised by McKinsey uh, to promote a report on social enterprise. And uh, we all left feeling we ought to do something together, not knowing what we were going to do. Fine. And we'd exchanged our addresses. So I called that group together. Some of them said, I don't think we should do it. It's not the sort of thing we want to do. Others said, yes, please. And I formed the consortium, and together we bid for uh, the, the, the 100 million. Mm. Um, luckily, because my friend at um, Ashoka, uh, sorry, at um, McKinsey's, was the chairman of Ashoka, which was one of the, the groups, I said to him, why don't you be the chairman of it? Yeah. And as a result of that, we got um, two full-time McKinsey consultants to work pro bono for us for every period of about five months. Wow. 14 people, just 14 people replied to the challenge. Yeah. Four were shortlisted. Okay. One was actually one who'd been in our consortium and were too greedy and left to do it on their own, the Royal Society of Arts. <laughs> yeah, was, we didn't, I was wondering if there was going to be a name yeah. drop there. <laughs> yeah, another was City and Guilds, and the third was a consortium of big name charities like the Prince's Trust and the British Council and others, all the good and the great. Yeah. Um, two of them dropped out, and at the end it was us versus the good and the great. Okay. And um, we hacked it. We inspired the Millennium Commission to believe that we could do something imaginative and creative rather than just run pots of money and give out awards. Um, and so they backed us. And then it took two years uh, to get the thing up and running. And we made our first award in February 2013. 
I remember one of the original awards was to the Muslim Youth Helpline, mm. which had been started by a 17-year-old young Muslim in Stanmore, working from his uh, family's house's loft, um, providing advice to young Muslims. And obviously wow. that's been much wow. more relevant over the years. Yeah, of course. That's powerful. So, so that, 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 that's unlimited. Um, yeah, so... Um, why did I leave Directory of Social Change? That's a um, question. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I, I got quite bored with the idea of supporting people, particularly people working in bureaucracies, uh, to, to try and do, do their work better. Okay. There the, are the things that are a bit more imaginative that I could be doing. Um, and I really like the idea of investing in individuals with ideas. Mm. what I call the three eyes of social change. Um, because I think everything starts from an individual and an idea, whether it's National Trust or Oxfam. Definitely. One person, maybe sometimes a group of people together, have an idea and do something with it. Uh, and then they go to grow and grow and grow. They become bureaucratic. They separate out their fundraising from their delivery. Things don't work very well. And the organizations actually are the worst for innovation and mm. for responding to need. Um, and it's quite interesting, ActionAid, for example, used to run an ad, it said, does this child need 50p more than you do? And there's a picture of a black African child. So all your prejudices come in, prejudices come in. here he's black, he's poor, uh, we can help him, we are the only people who can help him. Uh, so you, it was one of the most successful child sponsorship ad advertisements ever um, uh, because it, it touched people and 50p, it was 50p a week plus gift aid, which is actually a reasonable sum of money per annum. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, ActionAid was preaching self-reliance and that they, that they were helping communities to help themselves. And the two messages uh, get completely separated. Mm. Um, another one was um, uh, uh, was the NSPCC ran something called the Full Stop Campaign. Okay. Let's put a full stop to child abuse. Um, donate a pound. Successful campaign. Yeah. But if you're going to stop child abuse, what do you do? Do you ban alcohol? Do you cut off the penises of all men? And what, what do you do? Because child abuse is a complex thing mm. caused by all sorts of things, and you can't just stop it with a pound, and you can't just stop it anyway. Um, so I, I got a bit bored with the fact that I was working in this sort of world, and I wanted to work in a world which is a little bit more exciting. Okay. But what I wanted to do was to take some of my own ideas and turn them into uh, projects. So I've been involved with uh, the founding of Changemakers, yeah. and that was a project I was working on. I got a small grant from Crisis uh, to work with homeless people. Um, it was £2,000. So we took a youth hostel for a weekend, and we invited homeless people and social workers and NGO people uh, to the youth hostel to see if there was anything we could do uh, working with homeless people. Perfect. We'd, what we decided we wanted to do was to help homeless people do something for themselves. Wow. So we ended up setting up a Wednesday afternoon club 
we paid everyone two pounds uh, to come, which is money they could have without jeopardizing their benefits. Yep. And they worked on projects. Um, one of the projects was to create a memorial to a homeless person mm. uh, who died on the streets. Mm. Another was a speak out where homeless people were on the on the panel and all the providers were in the audience and they said what they wanted. Wow. Which made me dogs and sex, but not together, because oh. hostels were single sex. So how does a homeless person cater to his personal sexual needs? Mm. Most of them refused entry to dogs, and a lot of homeless people have dogs. It was just indicative of the fact these institutions were not aligned to the needs of the people they were serving. That went on to create Groundswell, which is the National Federation of Homeless uh, Self-Help Groups, um, which um, uh, was a little small thing working with a partner, which was um, the National Housing Federation or Homeless, I can't remember what it's called, it's oh, something else. Um, how, how a small idea can uh, develop into something transformational. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so um, the, and then I, I, I just started uh, doing think, thinking about things I wanted to do. I wanted to work in India. Um, so I, uh, I actually got a grant from the Foreign Office. Uh, but I didn't because they actually didn't give me the grant. But what they did was they opened up the embassy in India to host me and to provide me with a car and a minder and fix up appointments in three cities nice. to talk about um, the voluntary sector improving it um, and making a difference. And that got me started on work in India, which included literacy work. Yeah. I published books for semi-literate readers uh, to give them information because everyone said they can't read, we should sing to them and dance with them. Why give them words when they're, uh, they're illiterate? And the reason you give them words is because in order to escape poverty, they need literacy. Mm. If they remain illiterate, they will, um, uh, they will never escape poverty or very seldom. And I remember meeting a filmmaker who made a film about illiteracy in a village. And the village headman at the beginning made a vow that he would remain silent till the village was literate. And the end of the film was he held up a little sign saying, thank you, the end, because he wasn't allowed to speak because oh, the village still wasn't literate. But what was interesting... What a powerful story, yeah. Well. In that village, there were no words for people to read mm. at all. So... Um, I, I published books for semi-literate people. Um, I started a... Um, well, a non-fiction? Non-fiction, just information. Yeah, so, so on, uh, for example, vermicost composting, how, how you compost your waste using worms, very practical things um, that people could do. And we published about 50 books in the end uh, in a language called Telugu, which I, uh, I bought a book called Learn Telugu in 30 Minutes, I took it on a plane ride, which was a 90-minute plane ride. By the end of the plane ride, I couldn't speak a word of it. I gave up. (laughs) Um, So, um, and I I took ideas like um, the, 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 um, the, the idea of change makers led to youth bank. So 
the young change makers needed money to uh, for their projects. And I thought writing to NatWest or Barclays for a small grant will take a term at least to get, to get money. And by that time, their project will be almost too late. Why don't we set up a fund? And then I said to myself, if we set up a fund, why don't we uh, get young people to run the fund? Because that's the change makers approach. Yeah. So we, um, I invited people to a meeting. And often when I start projects, I start by having a discussion with people to see how they respond to the idea. So I invited about 40 people to a meeting. 24 people came. Before the meeting, I had a fax from the Tudor Trust mm. saying, uh, sadly, we can't come to your meeting, but our trustees like the idea so much that we want to give you £50,000. I read it again, and I said £50,000 a year for two years, so I'd already doubled my money. Nice. Um, and we had no idea how to do it. So the, the idea we came up with was, was we would select six organisations, give them £50,000 each uh, to, as money to give out to young people. Yeah. We would provide some of the training, they would provide others of the training, and we'd let them get on with it and see what they did. And one, for example, held a first meeting uh, for young people in its network and decided to make a grant at that meeting. Another provided three months of training before they uh, selected anyone. Another advertised for people to come forward. Mm -hmm. They all differently in Scotland. They worked through youth cafes in the Highlands and Islands. And um, the only one that actually continues is the Northern Ireland, okay. uh, which worked cross-border um, and then went on to found Youth Bank International. So now Youth Bank operates in about 40 different countries around wow. the world. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, so one idea leads to another youth bank. Uh, I was having breakfast at the Ford Foundation in Delhi with a grants officer, and he said, we'd love to take youth bank, uh, bring youth bank to India. Why don't we do that? And he said, I have only one condition. The National Foundation for India has to be the host organization because they were funding it and they wanted to give it more functions. Okay. Um, so we... Uh, we organised four pilots, and I said two would be for secondary schools and two with street children. Nice. And the street children didn't like the idea, but what they liked was not uh, to give money away, but to uh, to save money and to borrow money. Wow. So from that came a street children's banking programme. Yeah. From that, I came back to the UK and I thought, well, um, we need financial literacy just as much as street children do. Mm. So why don't we create something similar, children running their own bank in a school to encourage savings. Wow. Uh, and I advertised for people to run it. Um, and a young lady came forward. She was actually uh, introduced to me through a contact, but we interviewed seven people. We selected her. Within three years, she'd become Young Social Entrepreneur of the Year. Wow. And my bank, which is the name of it, has become one of the leading providers of financial literacy. Yeah. And so it goes on. Um, uh, Incredible. So you, you know, I, I really believe in ideas, and I believe in one idea after another, one idea leading to another idea. Amazing. And that these ideas don't come from within big organisations. They come from mad, inspired individuals 
were created. From random moments and we have to yeah. way process but them. We yeah. also have the energy to do something. Absolutely. Um, and they, they may start small, or they may start with very big ideas. Mm. And these days, actually, we get a mix of people because we also get people in the social enterprise sector setting up businesses yeah. and trying to raise hundreds of thousands of pounds, even millions, before they get going. Mm. As we get people applying for pilot grants of, say, 20,000 to test an idea. Yeah. Interesting. So I do want to ask you about your book, definitely, uh, at some point, Fixing the Planet. But I'm just thinking now, if, if one of our listeners, let's say they might be a CEO of a charity, maybe they're just somebody who wants to start a social enterprise or a CIC or a registered charity, they have an idea, anyway, of what can drive yeah. social change. What would you say to that person, Michael? I know you don't know the story, but yeah, yeah. what advice it, could you give to someone in that position? Well, there are two things. Um, the biggest failure is to do nothing. Okay. Yeah. So that's the first lesson. The second thing is it is often quite hard to give up a job, particularly a well-paid job, to start uh, something in the social sector. Um, so it's not necessarily the only option that you do that. For some people, it's the right option. Yeah. You need to think carefully about it. For others, uh, it's what I call evening entrepreneurship test out something as a hobby, as a sideline. And if it begins to take off, then make the leap. Or even uh, employ someone and keep your highly paid job um, and donate some of that uh, to the organisation to afford to pay someone. So there are different ways into it. Um, But a lot of people today are interested in the, the sort of blended idea of social action and business enterprise yeah. of, of a for-profit approach yeah. uh, within a certain guidelines. So not a greedy for-profit approach, not an exploitative for-profit approach, but one which respects the beneficiaries and puts the mission and the shareholders uh, perhaps as equals, mm. as co-equals uh, in your thinking. Because it's really easy if you're fun- running a social enterprise to be dragged by the financial aspects of it. Um, and do things just for money um, and forget about the mission. And, and thinking about the mission actually leads you to becoming more creative and more innovative. But you can also do this as a business. So, um, for, for example, I met in China, where I've done quite a lot of work, someone who was setting up a, a business. He'd got to about $10, $15 million a year turnover and it was producing headphones. The difference with these headphones was that uh, it transmitted the sound through your skull, not through your ears. I know this type, yeah. Yeah, and there are lots of possible uses for it. One is uh, possibly with the profoundly deaf. Absolutely. And he had already been in touch with deaf organisations in China to see if he could collaborate. Uh, so, although it was a commercial business, mm-hmm. having a social perspective can lead you to change the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think you're right, isn't it? It's balancing the need for, well, also recognizing the value of the services. I mean, we're a charity at DSC, but we're self financing in the way you've explained here. And yeah. we've, we've cost our products at the value that they are, yeah. not necessarily at an inflated yeah. value that we can afford to sell things at. And, yeah. We've yeah. come back to being that because in the middle, there was a huge amount of money from the Home Office and other bodies 
equivalent to what MCPO and others were getting. Wow. Okay. And all of us actually have had to become more self-reliant over the years. And I, I actually think it's a good thing. Same, same. It's in balance, isn't it? As long as the drive for social change is still on the up, then absolutely, if we can be more self-reliant, get the money closer to the organisations, more resilience, community funding. Um, I love it. So talking about your new book then, Fixing the Planet, if I was to pick up a, a copy and have a, a read of it, what, what might I expect to read about in the book? Yeah, well, during lockdown, well, on, I, I locked down, I think it was on the 13th of February, yep. 13th of March 2020, which was about 11 days before our dear Prime Minister um, uh, was all a to announce yeah. a lockdown to the rest of the yep. world. I, I was scared of it. Um, and really, for the next few months, I didn't go out of the house at all. I went for midnight walks uh, to keep exercised. Um, and I thought, well, to keep saying I needed a project. Mm. Um, and the project I selected was, and I don't know why I selected it, was what's wrong with the world <laughs> and uh, what are people doing to put it right? So I selected, well, originally it was a 20 and it ended up as 40 different topics. Wow. wow. And the, 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 the first chapters are on climate and environment, but it goes through drugs and imprisonment and uh, and uh, and um, uh, chemical uh, chemicals in, in in the world and all, all uh, uh, um, nuclear waste and nuclear bombs yeah. um, wow. through through to inequality kleptocracy and business right. doing bad so yeah. there are forty different themes in the book wow each one of them starts with a, a display it can be a map it can be a table of um, the best and the worst in the world. So where are the climate change hotspots? Who has the um, the worst outcomes for inequality in the world? Mm. And so uh, it then has some uh, sections on explaining, idea. <laughs> explaining <laughs> the issues, underlying issues, and some of the, the reasons and causes. And then I go on to people making a difference. And... Uh, they're often ordinary people rather than big, impressive, Silicon Valley-type people uh, doing interesting things. Amazing. Um, and many of them are people that I've met. And we end up with um, just a call to action, something you can do, watch a film, access an internet, uh, do something. Be aware, build awareness. Well, yeah. A bit more than be aware, because yeah. the idea of... Um, understanding is never enough. You've got to understand in, in order to uh, be aware enough to be uh, to feel that action is needed, and then take action, and then you've got to encourage all your friends to do things. So the, the, this yeah. is the idea behind the book. Yeah, powerful. Interesting. I received the first advanced copy yesterday. Cool. Um, I gave it to my wife to read. She uh, she thought it was brilliant. Um, although she's been, I guess, a little bit um, hesitant when I was writing it. But to see it actually and see all these themes come together in mm. one. And our challenge now is to sell it. Um, so it's going to be in the bookshops from Ju uh, July the 7th onwards. Uh, so, that's wow, that's quick. Wow. No, I mean, it took, it took four months to write. Okay. It took a year to 
uh, find a publisher. Yep. It took another three months to edit and uh, update it. That's quick. That's good. And then, then, then it took uh, probably about uh, four months to get to the final um, design. Course. And my publisher's done an amazing job in uh, designing a book which is small in size that fits on a bookshelf. Mm. It's quite long in extent. It's 384 pages. Um, and uh, it's designed so it's easily readable. Um, and Not it that. looks really nice. Um, I'm very, very proud of it. But I, I've got to push it, uh, A, because I'd like to sell it, because I'd like people to read it. But I'd also like people to read it because I think that in it they will find ideas which um, will uh, um, inspire the them. World. So, Absolutely. I mean, we, we go from the direction of social change. In between, there's a book I wrote called 365 Ways to Change the World, which yep. actually became a, something of a bestseller. It was published in about 17 different countries. Yeah. Um, and, we still um, sell it, right? It's still, it's still for sale. Okay. Uh, I think it, it's more or less out of print now anyway, but, Fine. but yeah, um, it, it's certainly out of date. Uh, but that, that was actually linked very much to the original idea of director of social change, mm. uh, but it was in a different format. It was in the format of an issue a day and something to do with that issue, but also linked to people and organisations who are doing interesting things. So uh, Fixing the Planet is in the same genre. It's a survey of options and ideas for people to encourage action. Michael, that sounds amazing, and, and I will definitely be getting my hands on it. That's right up my street. I, I, I love that thinking. And um, so before before I get you to just uh, tell the listeners where they can find you, um, is there anything else you wanted to share, any any more stories or comments you wanted to give the listeners today? No, I mean, just my, my latest project is quite interesting. Please I'm share. working with a primary school. Okay. Um, and the idea is to address poverty and need. Um, one of the questions you asked me was, um, is, is addressing need enough or should we be doing things in other different ways? Absolutely. Um, and this project actually emerged from, uh, I play bridge and I was playing bridge with a friend <laughs> in a posh house in uh, Belgravia. And he called me aside and he said, take a look at this. And he filled a room with about 350 bags full of things he'd collected to give to the poor people of this community in Sheffield, uh, who were parents at this school at the centre of the community, uh, because through a, a chain of circumstances, he uh, led to the school and the head teacher. And he said to me, what do you think? And you said, Joe, this is amazing. It's wonderful. It's so generous. It's um, really amazing what you're doing. And then there's that three-letter word, but. But it does not solve the problem. And surely we should be creative and imaginative enough to do something which actually sets out to solve the problem. So nice. I persuaded Joel a few months later to host a little dinner for about seven people at his flat. And um, I was left with holding the baby because they all thought it was a good idea to start an initiative at a primary school mm. to provide people with opportunities to encourage them to volunteer and get engaged, to create mutual aid solutions and to build their skills and confidence. Wow. And we've been going for three and a half years. Um, I've just completed a lottery bid for the next stage, which I hope will be successful. 
And by the end of that, I hope we will have embedded the program within the school. The school already thinks it's important enough to uh, uh, to pay half of the project from its own resources. That's amazing. So that's uh, interesting. And the idea is that a primary school is an obvious centre for any community because it has 300 people coming twice a day uh, to visit it, which yeah. no community centre has. Mm. It has resources, it's got space, it's got facilities, it's got equipment uh, that could be used much more widely than in the school. Absolutely. The school day is a tiny part of the total year period. Mm -hmm. We have evenings and weekends and holidays and inset days and God knows what else. This, yeah. um, the, these the, these uh, resources are not used properly. So our idea has been to work with one school to show what can be made to happen. Um, and I'm quite proud of what we've achieved so far, but we've got a hell of a lot more to achieve. Absolutely. So there's another lesson, which is you never achieve your objective. Um, and actually, um, the, you know, we set out to make a better world, and then we ask ourselves the question, is the world better all these years later? Mm. I can't with my hand on my heart say, yes, it is. But what I can say is I tried, and I encourage others to try, and without trying, it will never be better. And if you try, it'll be less worse than it would have otherwise been. Absolutely. So um, I think we, we set ourselves too high an ambition, like the full stop campaign. We can eliminate child abuse. We can't. Um, we can ameliorate it. We can deal with some of the victims of it. We can change our attitudes in society. Uh, these are things we can do and should do. Uh, but the world will continue to need social activists and social entrepreneurs Absolutely. because my generation passes on to your generation who passes on to the next generation and and my grandchildren's generation god help them with climate change i don't know what sort of world they're going to be inhabiting and what sort of world their children will be inhabiting but it is a world where if we don't take action things will be much worse if we do they could be a lot better and they could be wonderful not just climate changes it's toxics and the microplastics and yeah. everything else you speak yeah. about in your book yeah. has to be worried about i won't be having children michael for those reasons <laughs> yeah, yeah. And oh, and that, that's yeah. an interesting uh, aside that people respond in different ways to to the circumstances absolutely thank you so much for sharing your story michael really passionate to hear from my perspective definitely as someone who's worked at dsc and as much as we have beneficiaries i'm a beneficiary of dsc as well definitely as an employee and a lot of the culture comes from those initial days that we still see we still talk about being self-financing and how important that is and it's yeah, great to see yeah. where that came from yeah yeah so good luck with everything and um, one, one of the things is organizations don't have to exist forever but it's a pleasure when they continue. And um, we're 45 years on or something with DSC. Um, and so yeah. we're going to plan the 50th anniversary. <laughs> Can't wait. I'll, I'll be there for it, mate. Love it. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Really appreciate your time. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks to the listeners. Cheers.
Thank you for watching Charity Questions by the Directory of Social Change. So this is the podcast where we bring charity experts to you and we ask them the questions that you provide us via social media. So if you want to get involved, please check out the Directory of Social Change on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. And of course, to hear more about this content and to learn more about Charity Questions, subscribe to our YouTube channel now and of course, like this video to let us know if you enjoyed it. Thank you very much for watching. Cheers.